Luke chapter 20, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 27 down to verse 40. Now there came to him, that is Jesus, some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also in the resurrection. Therefore, which one's wife will she be for all seven had married her? Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Amen. Well, we want to talk about uh, this passage, about marriage, about the resurrection. This is now the uh, second period of questioning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you remember that last week we saw Jesus was uh, questioned about whether it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And of course, uh, this was not uh, an academic question, congregation. This was not uh, for information, but rather this was a question sought to entrap our Savior, to try and get him into trouble, even maybe with Herod, and thus bring distress upon him. Well, the same is here. We have here uh, men who belong to a sect of Judaism called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are a group uh, that do not believe in the resurrection. And uh, they are coming not because they want to know about the resurrection to see if they need to repent uh, about their wrong views, but rather they are here trying to show and make Jesus look ridiculous. And they're trying to show certainly there could not be a resurrection. And they give this uh, story about a woman who marries seven brothers. Now, I want to talk a little bit by way of introduction, the question that the Sadducees set before Jesus. And then secondly, after we look at this question in general, I want us to then consider Jesus's answer, particularly his answer with regard to the authority of Scripture and also with regard to the bodily resurrection that Jesus does indeed affirm. So let's look together at our text here a little bit. We'll just fly by and then I want to get into the topic of the resurrection. 
Now, notice here, verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Now, you remember that the Sadducees are in opposition to the Pharisees. Uh, They are two parties of Judaism. And the Sadducees might be what today we might think of as mainline liberals. Uh, Not only did the Sadducees deny the uh, bodily resurrection, but they also denied other important doctrines as well. Uh, They were, as Charles Spurgeon called them in the 19th century, Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister, called them the broad churchmen, the broad churchmen. They they are broad in their views. Uh, They also denied the writings of some of the prophets. Uh, We find in Acts 23 that they are also theologically opponents of the Pharisees. So it's interesting. You have the Sadducees and the Pharisees who ordinarily are theological opponents. But in this, they're in agreement that they are opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin commenting on this fact says this. He says, we see here how Satan brings together all the ungodly. Who in other respects differ widely from each other. That is, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees differ widely from each other theologically. And yet they have this in common. They both oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we see this in the civil sphere, too. Pilate and Herod, who are at enmity with one another, come together in their opposition of Jesus Christ. Well, John Calvin goes on. He says that even though they differ widely from each other theologically, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together to attack the truth of God so that the Pharisees are not displeased, even though their own doctrine. Remember, the Pharisees do believe in the resurrection, even though their own doctrine is being attacked by the by the Sadducees. Though it's being attacked in the person of Jesus, they're okay with that. That is the level of their own hypocrisy. Now, Calvin goes on, he says, in short, it is impossible to conceive anything more absurd than this dream that men formed after the image of God are extinguished by death like beasts. Calvin is saying here that so Uh, degraded, had much of the theology of the Jews become that they were denying one of the most basic doctrines of the Bible, even the doctrine of the resurrection. One of the things that distinguishes man made in the image of God from the rest of the creation, from the animal kingdom. Now, why do they give this question, boys and girls? You might be thinking this is a really strange Hypothetical question. Why do they ask Jesus about a woman who marries seven brothers? Well, there is some basis for the question in the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, we have what is known as the Leveret Law. That's spelled L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leveret Law. And in this law, we learn that if a man should marry and he dies without children, there was an obligation upon the family, particularly brothers, to marry the widow and to raise up children for the deceased. Now, the reason for this is plain, and that is you have to understand that the land typologically represented a form of salvation for the people of God. The land and the inheritance in that land represented, in a sense, the new heavens and the new earth typologically. It was a it was a way of expecting the kingdom of God, if you will. And so if a man typologically was to die without 
children, he was typologically, in a sense, cut off from that salvation, that inheritance. And that is why, for the sake of that man's name, the family took up the obligation to raise up children for that man, that his, that his name would not perish in the earth. And we can see this, uh, for example, uh, negatively in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, you remember there was a wicked man named Onan, boys and girls, O-N-A-N. And he failed to observe this Leverett law. And he was uh, cursed by God and he died because of it. And you, you remember the story of Tamar. Well, also positively, we see in the book of Ruth, chapter four, Boaz, who positively does fulfill the Leverett law. Remember that there was one who was kin uh, to Naomi closer than himself. They go through the uh, legal obligations. He's saying, hey, you know, um, we have a kin who has no children. He was married. He's got a widow. Uh, we're supposed to fulfill this Leverett law. And uh, and the closer of kin says, oh, I'm out. No, I don't want to do that. And Boaz takes up that responsibility uh, himself. So th- this was a part of the law of God. But what the Sadducees are trying to do is they're trying to make this. Uh, they're trying to use this law to make the resurrection look ridiculous. They're trying to say, OK, well, who's if this man dies and he has all these brothers and they all marry her and nobody has any sons uh, then what are you going to do in the resurrection? All seven brothers married this woman. So whose wife will she be? The first, the second, the third? Well, they think they have Jesus trapped here. But what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says two things. Number one, they're ignorant of the scriptures. Now, Luke, interestingly, doesn't emphasize that. Matthew emphasizes that. But they both emphasize, both Matthew and Luke emphasize that they're also ignorant on this important doctrine of the resurrection. They're ignorant of the scriptures and they're ignorant of the resurrection's power. And so what does Jesus do here in response? Well, Jesus says here in verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age of the to, to that age and the resurrection from the dead. So he affirms the resurrection. There will be a future resurrection in the age to come. Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore. Now, I know this sounds strange to many of you, especially for those of you who are married and for whom marriage was is a great blessing or was a great blessing if you're widowed, uh, to think that in the age to come we're not uh, to be married uh, any longer to, to someone who meant so much to us in this world. And I think we have to understand here that as we move from this age to the age to come, the Lord is not giving us less in the age to come. And, and this is where I think we have to bow to the mystery of the scriptures, because you, I know for many of you, you think there, there was no greater blessing in my life than to be married in this world. And, and what we have to realize is, is that that God here is promising us even greater blessings than even marriage in this world could provide. Ben, can I get you to cut on the air for me here, please? Let's hit that blue button down. <laughs> Thank you. That that the Lord here is promising us greater blessings in the world that is to come. But Jesus does affirm uh, for us the resurrection from the dead. And I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the resurrection 
as a part of our understanding and our theology. You know, the resurrection is a is an extremely practical doctrine. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that the resurrection is of first importance. And I think that the church is not emphasizing the doctrine of the resurrection enough. It is acknowledged, of course, usually in the spring around Easter time. Many churches uh, speak of the resurrection. But even there, I think there's a loss of sense of, of it, because I tend to think that evangelicals look at the resurrection as an isolated historical reference to the person of Jesus alone. And what we're failing to appreciate there is that in the resurrection of Christ is our resurrection. That 1 Corinthians 15 says that in the resurrection of Christ is our future resurrection. That Christ is is not just being raised from the dead in an isolated sense for himself alone, but he is being raised from the dead for us all. We are raised. The, The guarantee of your future bodily resurrection is the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the earnest. It's the down payment that guarantees that God will not forget your body in the age to come. That the body, you were made body and spirit, body and soul, and that you, you are going to be redeemed in the totality of your humanity. That the body is not going to be neglected in the age to come. I, you know, those who are members of this church uh, have heard me say this several times. This will be new to you guys from the Singles of Napark group. But one of the things that has really mystified me as a pastor, as I go to evangelical funerals in other traditions and denominations, this is to sit through an entire funeral service and never hear anything about the resurrection. I hear about their soul being present with the Lord. But I think this is why I say that I think evangelicals need to re-examine their foundations. Paul says this, this doctrine is of first importance. How can you go to a funeral where the evidence of the curse is right there in the coffin and not speak of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in raising that body from the dead? That, that Jesus is going to do for this body on the last day. That, that's the reason... That's the reason, congregation, we don't, as other religions do, just throw bodies on the fire and and have some kind of funeral pyre and burn it up. Is because what we are saying as Christians is that the, the body is redeemed by the Lord, that the body, though dead, is still united to Jesus. This is why we take care of the body of the deceased. This is why... We bury. This is why, because Paul said that the body is like a seed and like a farmer, we're putting the seed in the ground. And and we do so with the faith and the expectation that something better than the seed will come forth. What we are doing in funerals is we are testifying to a watching world that Jesus is alive and has been raised bodily from the dead. And because he has been raised from the dead, this body also shall be raised from the dead. And the body that is raised from the dead will not be the same body. It will be the same person, but it will be the body glorified. It'll be the same body yet glorified. Let me put it that way. That's a more accurate way to say it. This is of great importance for the church. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews calls the teaching of the resurrection from the dead one of those elementary teachings that should be familiar to the church. And I've been surprised at the number of Christians I have encountered over the years 
when I asked them what will happen to them after they die, they never mentioned the resurrection. Friends, I fear this is, this is the influence of Greek thinking rather than Christian thinking. This is the thinking of Plato, not Christ. You see that the Platonists, the Greeks, believed that the spirit world was greater than the physical world. And, and that, that, that the, the world of perfection was uh, out there. This was the world of the forms. And those of you who have studied, you know, philosophy, you know, Plato's cave. And, you know, there's a man who can only look at the wall and all he sees are these shadows. And that's this world. And, it, and this world is, is, is kind of a type of a, a greater reality. But that is not the teaching of the, of the Bible. The Bible says that God created all things. He created it good. Now, it has been marred by the fall. It has been marred, and in, in many cases, severely marred by the fall of man. But it is not destroyed. And Christ is going to redeem it. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. A new world. The old will be burned with fire. We don't know whether that's a purifying fire or whether it's a destructive fire and God recreates it all anew. I don't know. But God has said that he will prepare a physical world that will be glorified because of the work of Jesus Christ, because Christ has been raised from the dead. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 1, 4, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an attestation of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Buddha's not alive. Muhammad's not alive. They have died and their graves are with us to this day, to paraphrase the book of Acts. But Christ has been raised from the dead. In Romans 4, Paul says that the resurrection secures our justification. That by his resurrection, we are justified. Why does God accept you right now? Why doesn't he just break out in fire on this assembly? We've invoked his holy name and his holy presence, and we're sinners. Why does God not consume us like Nadab and Abihu? Because Jesus Christ is alive. Because Jesus Christ has been bodily raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us, and and we are in Christ. And therefore, your worship, your singing is accepted. Your prayers are accepted for the sake of Christ. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not a it's not a magical formula. It's not a hocus pocus that we say at the end. We, we are invoking the resurrection of Christ. Because God has been pleased to raise Christ from the dead. We are asking that our prayers be accepted by the father. Paul goes on in Romans six, verse four. He says that the resurrection. This is really an interesting theological Thought on the Apostle Paul. Paul says that the Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same resurrection power that's at work within your mortal members. The Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the Spirit who dwells within the believer. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is given to you. And so the resurrection testifies as a reminder to us we have been given power and grace to overcome sin and temptation. And so if any of you are struggling with a particular temptation, maybe you struggled and failed and struggled and failed and struggled and failed. Here's something 
for your encouragement. The spirit of God has been given to you who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He will also sanctify you. He will make you like Christ in holiness. And so the, and, and this is exciting that the, the power that is at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at work around the world in regeneration. The spirit has been poured out no longer in the Holy of Holies, in a building made with hands. But the, Jesus, at his death, tore the curtain down. And now, by his resurrection and his ascension, he has given the Spirit in abundance to the church. And so we, Romans 8, groan within ourselves, awaiting the redemption of our body. You know, the Sadducees should have known this. Don't think for a second that the resurrection is a New Testament doctrine that was not known in the Old Testament. It is more plain in the New Testament, but it was always there. Let me give you a couple of places to find the doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Number one, Job chapter 19, Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. Listen to what Job says. Tell me if you don't think. That the resurrection isn't in Job's thinking. Job, by the way, the oldest book in the Bible. Okay. And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. He says, after death, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. So, Job is saying, I'm going to live again in the presence of God in my body. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. But to but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, let me go back here to our text for a moment here, because notice here what Jesus says to the Sadducees. He goes, interestingly, to the doctrine of resurrection to another text, and that is Exodus chapter three. And in Exodus chapter three, what do we have? We have the scene of the burning bush. You know the story, boys and girls, right? You remember when Moses, he sees a bush, it's burning, it's on fire, and yet it's not consumed. And Moses says, wow, this is a strange sight. I want to go see this. And and so he goes to towards the bush and God from the bush, the angel of the Lord says, Moses, stop, take your shoes off your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. And, and you have this um, interchange between Moses and the Lord. Well, what does Jesus do with this passage? Well, Jesus here, verse 37, look what he does. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed Moses believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. In the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, what is the application? Well, here it is in verse 38. Jesus says, commenting on this passage, he says, now he, meaning God, the father. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. That is, he is the present tense God of Abraham, Isaac and and Jacob, he, he, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. I am the God of these, the fathers. 
This is why theologians have said that the doctrine of the resurrection is, I'll give you a little Latin phrase. I know uh, this is not a Latin lesson, but sine qua non, sine qua non, S-I-N-E, and then the second word Q-U-A-N-O-N. Can I have more air? (laughs) Thank you, sir. Just bump it down. Sine qua non. What does that mean? It means without which not. Without which not. What does that mean? It means that the resurrection is the sine qua non of Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Corinthians. If there is no resurrection of Christ, Paul says what? There's no truth to my preaching. He says your faith is in vain if there's no resurrection. He says it's worse than that. He says, we're found to be liars. We're false witnesses as Christians. If if Jesus has not been raised, we're going and telling the world something that isn't true. He says, there's no salvation if there's no resurrection. There's no comfort. There's no hope. He says, we are the most to be pitied if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Christ is the resurrection, he said, before he raised Lazarus. He is the resurrection. Let me say this. This is very practical. And I suspect it's one of the reasons the Sadducees didn't live holy lives. Our doctrine and our life go hand in hand. And I think you'll find that those, even if they go to church, but they deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. As Spurgeon said, follow them home and I'll show you why they deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Paul argues that when we believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, it does something practically to our daily life. We begin to realize that this body is important to the Lord, that the Lord will raise it from the dead. And therefore, we treat it as holy, knowing that the spirit of God dwells within us. And therefore, we seek to live out holy lives. Because my body is not my own, it belongs to the Lord, and therefore I seek to abstain from things that are sinful, and I seek to give my body to those things that are good and righteous and holy. The resurrection is a stimulus for holy living. And that is why I think why there was such corruption in the church in Jesus' day. They became lovers of pleasure, lovers of sin, lovers of self, because they were denying the resurrection. You know, I I think Christians, we are very familiar with the idea of Jesus as a substitute for us in death. I don't think the church is capturing this idea that he is also a substitute in life for us, That, that there is a there. We speak of the substitutionary death of Christ. We tend not to think of the substitutionary resurrection of Christ. And, and, and that union of Christ, I belong to the whole of Christ, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And, and this loss um, is leading to the poverty, I think, in a practical way to our church. You know, it's bad enough when liberals deny the resurrection of Christ or when they try to spiritualize it. 
you know, liberal churches will try to say, well, Jesus was raised in the consciousness of the disciples. Uh, they did, they'll, they'll use the word resurrection, but they void it of any historical meaning. And they will speak of they'll they'll speak of resurrection. They often don't talk about the resurrection. Um, and as bad as that is, um, I think we have evangelical churches that in many ways, while we profess an inerrant Bible, often are silent on this same subject in, in a practical way. The apostle said that this doctrine is of first importance and it needs to be of first importance in our thinking and your personal thinking as a Christian. The resurrection needs to be of first importance. It is it is central to the good news. What makes the good news the good news? It is the resurrection of Christ, that Christ has overcome sin and Satan and death. We have good news. Christianity is not fundamentally about exhortation and commanding people to do something. It is it is an announcement. It is Fundamentally, a proclamation of the victory of God in Jesus Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead historically. And, and when we look through the centuries, the churches emphasize this. For example, let me give you a few quotes here. First, from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostle Creed says this. The third day he rose again from the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. The Nicene Creed, from which we... Cited this morning in 325, the Council of Nicaea expanded in a and, and uh, or excuse me, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 expanded on even the doctrine of Nicaea on the resurrection. It says this. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And we look forward for the resurrection of the dead. The Westminster Confession of Faith said this, that the bodies of men after death returned to dust. And see corruption, but their souls, which neither, neither die nor sleep, having immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. And let me go on further. He says the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in the light and glory. Here it is waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. I'll move further down. They say at the last day, such are found alive, shall not die, but be changed. Even those who are alive, when Jesus returns, their body is going to be glorified in an instant. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same body and none other. That is, it's really going to be you. It's really going to be you. Your body will be raised from the dead. I will see you. You will see me. Won't won't be your soul imported into an alien body. It'll be your body raised, glorified. Let me bring it to um, some applications and, and, and a conclusion. Number one, we need to speak of the resurrection of Christ. The silence in the pulpit and the ignorance in the pew regarding the future resurrection of Christians is to be lamented as a church. We, we pastors, I speak of myself and lay Christians, we need to be challenged to repent 
on this half of the gospel. And we need to offer hope to people for the soul, but also regarding their body. That this life does matter. God has created you a whole person with a body and with a soul. And that that our salvation extends to the whole person. Not just platonically to the soul. That's what the Greeks thought. The soul was more important than the body. The body was evil, they thought. The soul was what was important. The soul was what was good. No, Christ being raised from the dead means that our salvation applies to the whole person. It is good news for the whole of our humanity. The cross and the empty tomb is the work of our living God who raised Jesus from the dead. And these benefits, though are not immediately received at the moment of death, nevertheless are conferred to us truly because Jesus has been raised. Because Christ has been raised, he is the first fruit of our future resurrection. You can take it to the bank. Here's another application. Because our bodies are united to Jesus Christ and his resurrection, your body, therefore, is the temple of the spirit. And you need to avoid sexual immorality in a day where there is so much promiscuity going on in our culture. Sexual immorality is is dangerous. And we need to remember that Christ has been raised. And our bodies belong to him. And therefore, we need to be careful in, in a day where our culture says, do whatever you want with your body. We need to affirm that my body is holy, separate unto the Lord. And we need to avoid all sexual immorality. And we need to do and avoid those things that lead to sexual immorality. We need to be careful not just to uh, not engage in that immorality, but there are things that can happen that lead to it as well. We need to watch and guard ourselves and and be alert uh, to those things that lead to temptation. Be wise. Be careful. The other thing I'd like to say is we need to also as a church stress again the, the importance of burial. Now, people do ask me, well, Pastor, what about cremation? Do you believe in cremation? Um, my answer is this. If you choose cremation, I think you must bury the ashes. Okay, if you choose cremation, you are not free to just put the ashes on the mantle. We are Christians that believe in the resurrection. Now, I prefer burial, but I want to be careful not to go beyond the scriptures. And I know there are good Christians who would argue that all Christians should bury, nobody should cremate. Um, My own position is I personally don't want to cremate, (laughs) but I'm afraid to put that on your conscience because I'm not exactly certain that it is absolutely forbidden by scripture. I would say this though. You are obligated as Christians because what is cremation? Cremation speeds up the process, you know, of what happens naturally. I would say however, you are under obligation to testify to the resurrection what you do with those ashes that you don't rent an airplane and you just scatter them, you know, or throw them in the ocean. Or whatever, that we do testify 
that the body is important to the Lord. This physical world is of significance and Christ has redeemed the physical world as well as our soul and that we, we do look forward to our ashes coming forth from the ground and being raised miraculously even as Jesus has been raised. Our bodies are important and where, wherever you come down on what you plan to do, I think I do want to weigh your conscience with at least that much. That, that you bury for the sake of the gospel the remains of loved ones. One last thing. Um, we pray for reformation. We're praying for revival. We're praying for reformation. One of the things that we need to bring afresh to this culture is that Christ is alive. That he is king and he is bringing real life to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this to anyone here who maybe has never come to life yet. Um, We believe that God loves us and has sent Jesus Christ into the world as a testimony of his love for mankind. And that Jesus, as the son of God, yet truly a man, obeyed the law of God perfectly, substituted himself in death by submitting to the cross willingly. And that when he went to the cross, he took to himself your sins and my sins and died for those sins. And then, according to the scriptures, was raised bodily from the dead on the third day. And that this is our hope and our life. We trust not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our giving, not in our piety, not in our prayers, not in our family worship, not in our Sunday school attendance. We trust only solely in the living Christ Jesus. He's the alpha, the beginning and the omega, the end of our existence. He is all in all to us. He is God in flesh. He has been raised bodily from the dead. We believe in him. We trust in him for our eternal future. We trust him not only with our soul, that when we die we'll be present with him, but we also trust that he will miraculously raise our dust from the dust and he will reunite us, glorified soul and body, so that we will live for eternity in a new world that he also is bringing about. And you can have Jesus Christ yourself by faith. I, in Jesus' name, invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never come to faith in the Lord, I invite you this day. You don't have to sign a card, raise a hand, walk an aisle. You just simply believe that God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners of whom you are foremost and of whom I am foremost. And You put your trust in Jesus that he died for you. He gave himself for you and he was raised for you. And the Bible says you shall have life. You'll have new life, new power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will now be working at you, in you. Let's pray together.